listening to the oneofus.net podcast network It's time for a new digital noise. Aren't you excited? I know I'm excited. And I'm joined here by John Golson. John, thank you for coming out so late at night. I'm so excited. Yeah, what are you excited about? Uh, I'm I'm excited because it's almost midnight and I'll assume my true form. Oh, my God. I've never fly seen away. this before. <laughs> uh, You've seen uh, Hellraiser, that big uh, dragon skeleton at the end? That's me. Oh. Yeah. You know what? I thought it looked familiar. That's like, and I know we're not talking about Hellraiser, but that is always like, that's the weirdest part of that whole movie because you're, you're like Cinnabites and Frank and the puzzle box and you forget that the movie ends with like an Alan Moore looking homeless dude that like transforms into a dragon <laughs> skeleton and flies away. Flying dragon. <laughs> Which I'm like, how did the physics work on that? <laughs> or, or like, you know, Rampage. Of course the wolf flies. <laughs> we'll get to that in a future digital noise. But for this one, let me just first say we're sponsored by Oscar Blues Brewing Company, and thank God for them. Once again, I am drinking uh, without any uh, regard to uh, uh, my safety Old Chub Scotch Ale because it is very strong, but it is very tasty. I super enjoy this beer. I super enjoy of all, all of Oscar Blues beers. Uh, and if you are in one of these towns, if you're in Austin, you're in Colorado... There's two locations in Colorado. You're in North Carolina. They got brew pubs you can go to, and the brew pubs are pretty awesome. Where not only do they have all their beers on tap, there's so many good ones there. Like uh, they're uh, they have a stout there that is uh, cascaged that I can't recommend more than anything else. It's so good, unfortunately, not in the can because it's cascaged and just in the work that you, you don't put that in the can. <laughs> you got to get it on tap. Uh, they are so good. They're so tasty. You can get sodas that they make there. They make dry rubs. And if yeah, I guess if you're in the uh, market for a bicycle, they make those too, weirdly. But they're only on tap. <laughs> yeah, only bikes on tap. You have to get the bike on tap. Mm-hmm. They pour it out into a glass, mm-hmm. and then you got a new bike. Uh, also, big thanks to our subscribers. You know who you are. Please become one of us. We can't do this. This will not exist without you. Thank you. If you are one, please think about becoming one. We can't keep doing these shows without you. Anyway, without all that being said, let's get on to the reviews. We're going to start off. We're going to start off hard, John. We're going to go right to the the nitty gritty of the matter. We're just going to go deeply into the film that I had the most trouble watching this week. And I know you said this wasn't even your hardest one, but for me, this was the one I was like, I barely made it through, and I've always wanted to check this out. This movie, nineteen seventy two, acid western, and by that I mean. A film that's, I guess, te- technically a Western that is the product of a bunch of people who were on acid, and that's about it, called Greaser's Palace by Robert Downey Sr. That is, of course, Robert Downey Jr.'s father. Robert Downey Jr. actually makes his first film appearance ever, I believe, here as a practically an infant in one scene. Not like you're going to be like, oh, I'm going to watch it just for that. Does he have the mustache? Um 
it's Robert Downey Sr. more famously made a movie called Putney Swope, which was a mi- kind of a midnight movie classic. I've also seen that film and did not care for it. Went, yeah, not really my thing. Um, this is a story of Christ with Alan Arbus playing a zoot suited version of Jesus and an old West thing uh, who is looking to find work in Jerusalem as a singer, dancer, actor, ends up in a rundown Western town uh, that's run by an evil crime boss played by Albert Henderson. Uh, and from there, I don't even know how to describe this movie. He just kind of, it goes through some of the ticks of the story of Jesus when it feels like it, like bringing his son back from the dead who keeps getting killed over and over again throughout the movie. And then he keeps bringing it back from the dead. Uh, there's a lot of stuff to you like, okay, I get that this is calling on the story like uh, uh, of Christ, but does it mean anything? Is it anything other than a big joke? And watching the bonus features here, I'm like watching interviews with the director. He's like, no, it's just a big joke. And I go, well, then why did we watch something this absurd and surreal? You had nothing to say. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, Kind of hippie garbage, <laughs> sort of like um, you know in the in the early seventies there was an offshoot of uh, of the the regular hippies like the Flower Children that were the Jesus people that were like the Christian hippies, and there's a lot of this uh, that had that kind of like early seventies Jesus people feel, mm-hmm. but there is like a thread of unprofessionalism through it that can only come from heavy psychedelics. Yeah. Um, you know, it's the kind of movie that I bet has really, really staunch, supportive fans. Uh, but I kind of thought it was kind of a load of BS. It's, it is, you know, it's a movie like it's shot with film and everything like that, which which then leads me to go, okay, it must be some people with some rich parents, like some idle rich parents that are just like borrowing here and there because i don't think a studio funded this but it's just it's but again it's a bunch of hippies kind of like making up these little vignettes that are semi-christ related on the spot uh and it's probably never as amusing as they find it Uh, it's not insightful in any kind of way the way that anything by people on a lot of drugs is generally nowhere near as funny as they find it to be with the exception of cheech and chong films yeah uh, it's just one sequence after another. You can tell it's supposed to be funny, and you're like, you, "Why did?" Well, you there's certain things funny? like, "Oh, just the concept." Like, "Oh, like, oh man, it sure would be funny if when Jesus appears, he parachutes in." Yeah, and it's like, "All right, like that's 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 a kooky concept, but it's not really like funny." Or, you know, what if he keeps raising the same guy from the dead over and over? Yeah. And it's like in another movie, maybe that would be funny. In this, it's just sort of like it gets repetitive. Well, you know? part of the problem is this thing is going for really hardcore surrealism. I mean, it's super surreal in which, of course, more than one comp- person has compared it to uh, Alejandro Jodorowsky's El Topo. It doesn't have the visuals to... to- Back that up to well, me. Well, because they're both super surreal, religious-based yeah. westerns. And El Topo is about a billion times a better film than this because as you're watching it, and his Holy Mountain as well, which is more overtly a story of Christ, obviously 
that everything has meaning. Everything means something more than just, we're just being surreal to be surreal. Yeah. Here, like I said, even in the bonus features, he's like, yeah, we were just being surreal to be surreal. I was like, yeah, then, then why should I give a fuck? And I don't. I watch this. I mean, like, I think Arbus is doing his best to be charismatic as the Jesus figure. And there's kind of a fun sequence where he does a song and dance number mm-hmm. on stage in front of a bunch of discontented Western guys. And there's amusingly, Tony Basil has a brief uh, appearance in here as an Indian girl. Uh, Tony Basil did, oh, Mickey, you're so fine, you're so fine. You know, you know the song. I know the song. Um, hey, Mickey. Uh, Hervé Villachez, of course, from uh, 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 The Man with the Golden Gun in Fantasy Island, has a brief appearance in here who is hitting on Jesus very hard. Not sure what was supposed to be going on in that that sequence. But, yeah, this is just a mess. I don't know who likes this movie, and I would like to ex- them to explain to me what it is they thought they liked about it. Because I think this is garbage. <laughs> I'm, I really kind of hated it. But if you're one of those people, there's this is a brand new remaster of the film, struck from the original negative, which I can't believe even still exists. There's a video interview that I've been referencing with Robert Downey. Uh, there's liner notes by Jonathan Dem. Uh, and uh, that's about it. It's it is what it is. I just uh, I, I gave it a try. I gave Robert Downey Senior a try. I watched his two most famous movies. I hated both of them. Here we are. <laughs> Let's move on to something uh, I would say is significantly better, even if it's not your thing. And that is the Western film from 1958, The Big Country, directed by you know I mean film legend William Wyler. This was in that weird period in Westerns where, like, the 30s and the 40s were all about the traditional American Western. Like, that whole, like, good and bad. You knew what they were. You know, everything was very clearly defined. The 50s were where everything was starting to change. Where we were starting to get a lot more Westerns that were, like, heroes that were more gray characters. People who were, like, everything was a little more meta. And... Well, that's great. The cat's just destroyed something. All right. Uh, I, what is it? Who knows? Um, it's fine. It's my life, John. That's what happens. It's all right. It's my life. It happens in my, in my when I am go to bed. I'm like, I hear it from the other room. I'm like, something's broken. I'll find out tomorrow. Um, <laughs> uh, this is a film for its period, 1958, like I said, was kind of like when the big epic westerns were going out of style. But this was one of one of the kind of, I would argue one of the last gasps of that genre of the giant epic western. And by epic, I'm certainly talking about the running time as well, which is 166 minutes. That is a long time to spend with a western. But when you have a star like stars like Gregory Peck and Gene Simmons and Charlton Heston here, you're like, all right. And this was certainly a major hit when it came out. Um, but it's. A film that I'd say, if you're going to see it on your home theater, is not the way to see it. Because it's like, what makes it stand up still, and I think it does still stand up to some degree, is gorgeous, incredible landscapes and cinematography. That's just so beautifully shot. Great performances by the leads. And even a little bit of a, a, a you know, not surprise, surprise by our standards, because we, we've come to expect certain things. We've learned to, like read the language of a film where we know where this is going, but at the time certainly, things that to some degree with the romance uh, of the the main character and who he's there to see 
not the way you expect it to go. Gregory Peck is a successful, very rich sea captain who's traveled to the West to join his fiance, who he met in the big city, played by Carol Baker, who who herself is very rich. Her father, uh, Henry, played by Charles Bickford, owns an enormous ranch. Everybody just calls him the major. Uh, he's been feuding with Burl Ives, who's the patriarch of a poor uh, ranching clan. And the big problem is there's kind of a ranch with a big river in between them that's owned by Gene Simmons, who's uh, best friends with Carol Baker, Gregory Peck's fiance. The demon. Yeah. <laughs> who is... <laughs> From like, kids. Sorry. <laughs> who's like, I'm not going to sell to either one of you. You guys both want me to sell to you. I'm not going to because then it would be war. Mm-hmm. Somebody would lose. Gregory Peck comes into this as a guy everyone's like, oh, the city guy. Ew. Gross. Look at his dorky hat. Who turns out that he's kind of a badass because of course he is. Um... And for three hours plus, we see the story play out as uh, we generally realize that he probably shouldn't be with the incredibly shallow Carol Baker at all, but with the much more interesting, albeit less refined, Gene Simmons. I, I found this movie, as a guy who just westerns are one of my favorite genres, a real pleasure for me, but I... Even 166 minutes, you're like, dude, seriously, this is a huge investment into an epic, like, kind of sweet type of Western. I, I don't know. You told me you were you were even less inclined towards this one than I was. Well, that's because it's not my kind of thing. So, and I knew that putting it on, like, it's just, you know, people have, people have their tastes. Uh, and I typically... I'm not super into westerns, and I'm and probably my other one that I'm not super into is like war movies. Okay, uh, especially like vintage war movies. Hmm. Um, there are some. I mean, and, and even with westerns, there are some exceptions. Uh, and this one above the board. The minute the score hit, I was like, "Oh, this is like the classic like western score that things like as diverse as City Slickers or." Uh, like JBL, who's a wrestler, like his music copies the overall sound of this, which is sort of that, like, that big, that uh, Back to the Future 3, beef, it's what's for dinner, like all those kind of <laughs> Western things that echo the score to the big country. And then when the music kicked in, I was like, oh, this is like Super the cool. classic Western movie score. Um, and the acting is all great. The cinematography is great. Uh, at some point, there is a fist fight between Gregory Peck and Charlton Heston that, to me, felt like the climax that was going to lead towards the immediate resolution. And I realized there was still over an hour of the film left. Um, there's a they're they're trying to tell a lot of story in this story. Um, <laughs> it was one that it's like I can't fault it for anything. And I and I really can't fault it for its length in a way because I would imagine if you love movies like this, then you that length is going to feel really great because it's like you're getting so much of this world. Uh, I kept thinking of Giant. Yeah, when I was watching this, the James Dean film, yeah. which is also a super long movie. It was like it reminded me of that in that sense. And I don't think that you know that's the other thing is like for me if I'm going to get nitpicky about a movie that came out 50 years ago, like. It's, or more, I guess it's like 70-something years ago at this point. Oh, my God. Um, the thing for me is that, like, uh, 
you know, as long as it is, am I am I learning a lot of new information? Am I getting a lot of does it are there a lot of twists and turns? And it's kind of like no. It's sort of just a struggle over this patch of land between these different f- players. And, I mean, it's not as if there's no plot, but, you know, maybe there is <laughs> maybe there is an hour and a half cut of this movie that I just love the shit out of. Yeah. But I, as it is... I kept thinking the same thing. Yeah. As it is, uh, I, I cannot, I cannot, I, I cannot be critical of it outside of that because I think everything in it is exemplary. It just wasn't my cup of tea. Yeah, I get that. It's like when uh, somebody tells you, "No, no, this is really good sushi," and you're like, eh, "Still, don't like sushi." Like, <laughs> it's kind of like that, you know. I can't identify with that because I love sushi. Okay, so, <laughs> but but it's that thing where it's like, I'm. This is a great example of what it is, and I'm not sure that I, I'm the right audience for what it is. Well, sure enough, I am. Mean, that's great. Like, I, the, I I love that you're one of the critics who's like. I just know who I am, and I can tell you this is not my cup of tea. Oh yeah, because like you get—I mean, you get—you get prime Gregory Peck as the moral center of the film, mm-hmm. and at his Gregory Peckiest, you get Charlton Heston at his most Charlton Hestoniest. Yeah. It's and like even Chuck Connors who yeah. plays the villain at his most Chuck Connor. Yeah, and, and <laughs> so yeah, and how, how can I knock any of that? You know, I mean, yeah. really. No, I, I really, by the end of this, I was like, I'm glad, really glad I watched this. It was one of those like, fuck, it's how long? Mm-hmm. Uh, but, and it, it's a hard sell at first because more than anything, this first hour takes a while to get things going. But once it does, I was into it. I mean, that fight we were referencing between, that, that finally the whole movie is leading up to between Charlton Heston and Gregory Peck is kind of awesome the way that all plays out. I was like, I love it. And this is kind of a study in what it means at this period of time to be masculine from kind of a more liberal point of view. Yeah. You know, it's big city versus country attitudes. There's a lot of stuff I don't know enough about from what was going on in that period I wish I could be more eloquent about. But it it it's certainly saying something about that sort of to be a man is not about to be loud and in your face and prove what you have to do. The only person you have to prove anything to is yourself that I really liked. And I thought was very eloquently expressed by yeah. the film. Um, Burl Ives is good in it too. Burl Ives is good. And all I would argue there's not enough Burl Ives in it. Who who is a super interesting character as the patriarch of the the bad? Yeah, he is somebody who, when he was on screen, I I tended to get drawn in a little bit more. Uh, yeah, part of it because I'm so used to him being like sort of a cuddly character actor. Mm. So seeing him in something where he's kind of an asshole was uh, was more compelling. So there's audio commentary by a film historian. Uh, there is a 60 minute documentary about the films of William Wyler, which alone. It's worth owning this for if you're into the history of film, because Weiler is one of the all-time greats. Uh, there is outtakes here from the film, which is super weird for a film this old. There's not a lot of movies that have outtakes that are this old that still exist. Like, usually that stuff just ended up destroyed. Um, there's an interview with uh, some of the actors here uh, uh, and writers and creators. There's a making of featurette called Fun of the Country. There's Larry Cohen having a b- brief featurette talking about how much he loves Chuck Connors. Uh, two animated image galleries, the original theatrical trailer and uh, the uh, TV spot. Cohen didn't do Tourist Trap, did he? I 
Was that him? I'm going to look it up right now because I'm curious. But, uh, tourist, I spelled it wrong. All right. Tourist Trap film was directed by David Schmoller. Uh, yeah. But that did star hmm. Chuck Connors. Yeah, it did. That's maybe the first thing I ever saw, man. <laughs> Just saying. All right, so let's move on to a classic film noir, The Woman in the Window. This 1944 film noir directed by Fritz Lang, one of the ones I've always been like, maybe someday I'll get to see that one, uh, Is a stars Edwin, Edward G. Robinson, which to me is always going to be in my head every time I see him. I'm like, it's the police chief from The Simpsons. <laughs> <laughs> which is where they got the... The voice from it. Who's your Messiah now? Say, uh, um, that's that's what is it? The Ten Commandments. Sorry, I, just old jokes that get stuck in my head. He plays a psychology professor. Send send his wife and two children off on vacation. He hangs out in, in his rich people's club to meet his friends. Uh, like to smoke cigars and drink whiskey and what have you. What happened to those clubs? Why don't we have those clubs? I want to. I want to be a member of one. Of those uh, I think clubs. they, Chris. I'm sorry to break it to you. I think they still have those clubs. They just haven't invited me. I don't think. Saying. I don't think they invite guys like you and me. Damn it! I think we have to own tuxedos. That's step one. I do not. Own, you can't. I, I don't rent. even own a suit. Yeah. So I'm <laughs> much less a tuxedo. Um, so. On his way out, he sees this like oil painting uh, portrait of uh, this beautiful woman, and he and his friends are like, "Wow, that's amazing!" Um, he's standing there staring at it by himself afterwards, and there's a, ref- a, a great shot of a reflection through the glass, and it's the woman in the portrait, uh, played by Joan Bennett, and. She's like, yeah, that's me. And she very much in the seductress mode is like, why don't you come? Why don't we come hang out? He reluctantly, but not that reluctantly, comes to join her back in her home. Uh, And then an unexpected visit from her very rich lover, uh, Claude, played by Arthur Loft, leads to a fight which ends up with him being murdered. Uh, Not murdered. That's not the right word. Self-defense killed. He's stabbed in self-defense. Yes. Uh, but uh, 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 Edward G. Robinson's like, no, I have a wife and family. It, there's no way this wouldn't, like, you know, even though he hasn't hooked up with this girl, it's like, yeah, this is not going to look good. No one's going to believe we didn't hook up or there wasn't some salacious, something salacious he, going he on. He also is a, he's a, some kind of uh, criminal psychologist or teaches classes on uh, criminal justice. Yeah, it starts with yeah. Him. Giving a big speech uh, that is significant to, like, what's happening to the rest of this film. Um, They decide to hide the body. That doesn't go anywhere good. It ends up with the police pursuing him, even though he's friends with all the police. They're like, hey, we could use your help on this. So he's literally on the case that he's the murderer or the killer for. And, you know, I mean, this is... Almost a meta noir in some ways. It felt like it was kind of self-aware in a sort of sort of way. Like this is almost felt like a commentary about noir, which is strange for a film that came out in 1944. Um, I think my uh, I have problems with the ending of this film, and the ending is famous for being very debatable among critics because. The studio was like, this ending's too dark. you got to change it. And apparently, after the fact, Fritz Lang was like, actually, I think 
the ending you made us do was better. The writer was furious. Was like, this is ridiculous. I can't believe you made us change this. Now it mean, nothing means anything. Up is down, left is right, cats and dogs sleeping together. It's like, it, it's nonsense. I kind of agree with the writer. I see the point of where they were going because there is something, I think this, the, the ending this gives is such a cliche by today's standards. But, yeah. but I, they were going after sort of a more of the subtextual thing about this guy who's this privileged white guy and his fantasy life and all that stuff. I get what they're saying. I just wanted a more, I guess maybe it's me. Maybe I'm more the traditionalist. I wanted more of a traditional film noir that was leading where it felt like it was leading. What do you think? Yeah, it felt a little like a, and a cop out's the wrong word. It was, uh, it had a place it could have stopped that was far bleaker and then continues to kind of counteract that. Um, and it it did not strike me as... Uh, I tell you what, one was certainly more memorable than the other because sitting here talking about it, it in a weird way, I'd actually kind of already forgotten about the second... Uh, I'd already I'd already forgotten about kind of the second resolution that undoes the first resolution. Right. I remember the first one because that was certainly more impactful yeah. and was a moment that I was like, oh my god, like they're going here, and then they kind of don't go there, and and the don't go there part is not nearly as memorable as them going there. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I, I probably I mean I I I agree with you, but I don't think it. But when all was said and done. I I forgave it for that. I don't think I don't think I walked away from the movie necessarily thinking that the ending was a huge cop out or a cheat or anything like that. It felt of a it still to me felt of a piece. Even if I liked the other ending more, even this ending felt like it was still it didn't feel tacked on. It still felt like it was telling something. So, it's a shame that I guess that previous existing ending which was shot isn't around anymore because it's not included here. I would have loved to have seen it. Well, it's it happens, right? And then yeah. it doesn't happen. Like but it felt like maybe the original ending. We're, we're dancing around it as ending. a spoiler because yeah. it is because it is pretty good and it works within the context of the film. Um, I mean, they certainly don't show they don't show it proceed or show aftermath or whatever, but they definitely show the moment where you're like, oh, this is where this is leading. But I don't, I don't want to put all my eggs in the basket of, like, saying this movie was ruined by the ending. Because uh, I don't think it was. I mean, it was certainly I still made me think about it a lot. I think Edward, Edward G. Robinson is terrific in this thing. Um, I mean, he's, he was a great actor. He, even though I would consider him one of the great character actors, this is a, a leading role for him that has a lot of things going on that, where you're like sympathetic form and not sympathetic form at the same time. It's very twisty film noir stuff. There's like, you're never sure who to trust. I really I, like Dan Derea, who was a guy I'd never heard of before. Who plays, uh, uh, he's kind of the, the, he's the dude at the end that comes in like blackmails him. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. I yeah. really liked him a lot. Yeah. He's an interesting screen presence. I, I think this is, I get why a lot of people put this up in the top 10 all time noirs. I do. Because there's a super lot of interesting things happening here. It's a visually gorgeous film. I just, it just 
I don't know. It just didn't sit well with me the way it ended. Yeah, it's it's brisk and it's entertaining. Um, the only thing that I you know it's hard to it's hard to criticize a movie for its cliches before those things became cliches. Yeah, there's a lot of murder mystery cliches where someone will be like. Uh, someone like Edward G. Robinson will accidentally say something, and the cops or his colleagues will be like, "No one said she was murdered." Yeah, where and did then, you hear that? And, and then they're like, and he has to backtrack him so much. He's, they're like, "Ah, oh, I'm just fucking with you." Yeah, <laughs> basically, you know, like for the time, it was like so. Like, how dumb were cops? Then? <laughs> yeah, there, so there's there's a quite a bit of that which feels a little bit. Uh, you know, it, it, there's a little like Encyclopedia Brown like <laughs> aspects to some of that, like where somebody is like, "You said you were there on a Tuesday, but the store is closed on Tuesday." What? Like that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. And I, I mean, the the film is so old that I, I really, it's it's just nitpicking at that point. If I'm gonna, sure. if if it established the cliches in the first place that these movies have have then, you know, exploited to death. <laughs> I can't. I can't knock it. All right. So let's move forward a bit, although not to modern day, to a film I can't believe I never got around to seeing before now. I used to get this one confused with Nadia all the time, yeah, which I was too. another 90s in vampire art house movie. Oh, we reviewed that on our horror podcast, of Deliberation of the Doom, recently, and I was like, oh, this isn't the addiction. I, I didn't realize how firmly I had confu- conflated mm-hmm. these two things. This is the addiction by Abel Ferraro, who's probably best known for Bad Lieutenant, I would argue. Yeah, like Bad uh, Lieutenant. Yeah, Miss Forty Five. Yeah, those are the two name movies. Yeah, yeah. but The Addiction is one of his other big ones, uh, and this was a early film for actress Lil- Lily Taylor, who certainly was in tons of stuff after this, and and even before this, um, uh, Christopher Walken, Annabella Ciora. Uh, written by his regular screenwriter Nicholas St. John, filmed entirely in black and white. This is. A film that is a vampire movie, but only kind of, sort of. It's, I would argue that this is a film more about drug addiction, but then again, it depends on who you talk to, because a lot of people are like, and you, and who I agree with as well, to some degree, no, it's really about sin and Catholic guilt and things like that. And I'm like, yeah, you're right, too. I think if the, this movie has an error, it's that it wants to be about too much. There's there's on the nose and then there's totally off the face, <laughs> and this is like I'm like I'm at any given scene I'm not sure what you're trying to make us realize this is a metaphor for. But the story involves Lily Taylor. She's a young philosophy student at New York uh, New York University. She's attacked by Annabella Ciora, who uh, drinks her blood and tells her while she's doing it before she does it order me go order me to go away go away which is very important during the like this like tell me not to do this tell me not to attack you uh and she's like well we can't say the words don't do it she's like has other things to say that aren't don't do it by the way one of the most confusing aspects of this whole film for me not quite sure what exactly that's about but uh she gets bit, drinks her blood, she inherits this vampirism thing, which turns to more, uh, for most of the film, with, like, obvious 
drug addiction thing because they're pulling blood out of people with syringes and then injecting it into themselves. Although that doesn't even, even that doesn't stay for the whole film. There's a big sort of vampiric orgy sequence towards the end. That's just straight up ripping people's necks out, but it's her trying to figure out who she is as this new person and becoming full on this sort of evil vampire that is doing the same things he ordered with her, always challenging her victims with tell me not to do this and they never can. And then she drinks their blood and then they become vampires as well. Uh, in, and there's a lot of like, you know, recognizable faces in this, uh, Edie Falco from the, from the Sopranos amongst other things is plays her best friend here. Michael Imperioli, place like a, a sort of Christian missionary who gets sucked into the whole thing. And of course, Christopher Walken, when he's finally in the third act, close to the beginning of the third act is encountered is like, somebody's like, yeah, I've been this, I've been, in, uh, they never utter the word vampire, but a vampire for a long time. And you suck at it. <laughs> so to speak. Um, I, I will say, I think this is a gorgeous looking film. I really enjoyed watching it. I'm absolutely sure I was not, I'm just not smart enough for this film is how I felt watching it. I was like, I don't feel like I get what you're totally saying here, but I like watching you try saying it anyway. Yeah. Is that how you felt? I, I got nostalgic for 90s indie art house stuff while I was watching it. I'd seen it before it had been years. I saw it probably when it came out on VHS, like back in the day. And again, I don't know where I had... I, like Nadia, I don't know where I those <laughs> where those movies had had crossed over in my in my head. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, with this was more. It was weird watching this again because it was hard for me. It reminded me of such a specific time and place. It reminded me of when I worked at the video store and would rent stuff like this all the time, and it kind of took me back in that way. Uh, in the way that, almost in the way that, you know, people watch stuff from the 80s because it reminds them of childhood. Mm -hmm. It was weird like that because I didn't expect that to happen. But when it started, the the music and the way it was shot and the actors that were in it and stuff like that just kind of like, I was like, yes, this used to be my, this used to be my Friday night was going and renting all of the indie films uh, in the 90s. <laughs> Everything Abel Farrar is his, his, like, uh, his group of people put out at that point. Yeah. vendors. Yeah, so so I, I had like a weird kind of um, nostalgia glow uh, watching it this time that was unexpected. Um, but it's it is an interesting movie, and it and it does it is a really good looking Blu-ray as well. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, having only seen it in VHS, this is probably the best it's looked since it played theatrically. Uh, a really really solid uh, Blu-ray image. Um, you know, and it's and it is one of those movies that like occasionally will crack a list of the 50 best horror films you've never heard of. Oh, like yeah. I'll, you'll see it still pop up on stuff like that. It's definitely anytime there's a, the best vampire films you haven't seen last is yeah. gonna, or even in general, like best vampire films. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's worthy. Uh, you know, Lily Taylor's good. She's always good. Um, it's, yeah. it's just kind of, it's ambitions are intellectual and it may not hit any of its intellectual targets very strongly. Uh, and so, yeah, 
so its intent is not to scare. So that that's the vampire stuff is second fiddle to like sort of the metaphor of it, but then the metaphor is a little murky. But it's entertaining to watch when mm-hmm. it's doing the metaphor. There's something just absurd enough about it when it inserts it into it that's like, I don't understand what you're saying, but it's kind of fun to watch you saying yeah. it. Like, as opposed to, say, Greaser's Palace. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, that I was like, I don't totally get what you're doing, but I this isn't so surreal. It's not surreal in general, but, like, the things it does with the dialogue, which are those moments you're, like, I'm not entirely clear on, are still, like, they have a abstraction that feels like things that Dracula would even say. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. that sort of, like, you don't know what I'm talking about, but I know what I'm talking about. You know? Yeah. Um, it's weird that there's a lot of, like, <sighs> this is people manipulating other people into doing what they want. And Annabelle Ciora playing the person who starts it all, being one of the people who famously came out against Harvey Weinstein feels very like, like that had happened before this feels very like maybe she was working something out even by doing this, which is interesting. I think like a little postscript to reviewing this thing. But I, I do think this is very much worth your time. Um, it's so gorgeously shot, as are many of Ferrar's films. There's a ton of special features here, including audio commentary by the director, which is wacky, for the record. Uh, Talking with the Vampires, a new documentary about the film that Ferrar made himself, especially for this release, which is also wacky, uh, featuring several of the actors, the composer, uh, the cinematographer... Uh, there's a, a new interview with Ferrar as well, uh, a new appreciation uh, for the film uh, by a film critic. There's film, Abel, for, a, Abel Ferrar edits the, the Addiction, which is the archival piece from the time of production. Stills Gallery, theatrical trailers, a booklet including essays by film critics, and a reversible sleeve. So this is a pretty solid release. Uh, if you were at all interested in this film, or if you're like John, you worked in a video store and you were like, I remember this fondly. I would love to own a copy. Well, this is the copy to get. All right, let's continuing on into horror, and we have quite a few horror films to discuss this week. We have German Angst. I know, the title alone makes you go, this sounds complicated and something that's not necessarily up my alley, even if you're a horror fan. I am a horror fan, and I'm an art horror fan, and I will say for me, and I know we have very different opinions about this film, I thoroughly enjoyed this thoroughly imperfect anthology. <laughs> it's not... It's It's got two parts that kind of work and one part that really worked for me. But it's... They're underground from, uh, filmmakers here from, uh, I, I'm going to mispronounce names because guess what? They're all from Europe, uh, and they've got lots of like accent graves and, and umlauts over their names. Jorge Butgerit, who did Necromantic. Remember that one? Holy shit. Way back when. Um, Andreas Marshall, who did Tears of Kali and Mikhail Kosakowski, who did Zero Killed. I've not seen Zero Killed or uh, um, Tears of Kali. I cannot comment on those. But this is exploring, like, the, the, much like Necromantic, this relationship between sex and death. All three of these definitely have that angle. Uh, the first one, uh, 
Oh, oh my goodness. I'm trying to look at the... Oh, I, I, I apologize. I put up a list of stuff that I thought was more... Nope, nope, I did not. Of In list of each one. Uh, uh, Alorain is the last one. We'll just go backwards here. Which is the best one. Uh, it's the longest one. It's a person who ends up joining this cult kind of half-assedly, a sex cult that turns out to have kind of a Cthulhu thing going on that I found to be visually very engaging and super creepy and also kind of sexy at the same time. Before that is uh, uh, Final Girl, uh, which is the first film, uh, which is somebody basically getting a young girl getting revenge on her own father for incestuously having sex with her by torturing him to death, which is certainly the least of these three, I thought. Uh, but it's still visually very engaging. And then uh, Make a Wish, which is a young deaf couple who are attacked by neo-Nazis and use a Jewish talisman to uh, create a magic spell to turn the tables on their attackers. Or do they? which is the only part of it I didn't care for. I was like, really? Did it need the or do they part? <laughs> I would have really enjoyed it if it wasn't for the or do they part. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what, John, I know you told me flat out this was your least favorite of the stack. Yeah, it was. And I I had suspected it when I saw your Buttigieg, how do you say his name? When I saw his name on the cover, I was like, oh, this is going to be tough for me. I've lost my taste for kind of all things torture porny. Human suffering for suffering's sake. I can still handle gore. I can still handle stuff being disturbing. Like, I was pretty okay with the third part of this. By then, so much of the film had already lost me. Because I did not enjoy the first two chapters at all. Uh, by the time the third one rolled around, I was watching it almost with a chip on my shoulder. And then I kind of liked the third one fine. Okay. Um, but again, the third one also sort of had a story to it. So even though it had the gore and it had the sex, it did not feel like it was just being vulgar. Yeah. And I found the first two to be just kind of vulgar. Like it was sort of... I don't know. You know, where it was for me was probably Martyrs was the last movie I saw. When I saw Martyrs, and there's that. was the one that made me go, nope, I'm done with French Extreme. So, yeah. So, there's 30 (laughs) minutes in Martyrs where they're beating a captive woman. And as the movie progressed, I I think to me, the deal with Martyrs is it was like, we're going to take this as far as it can go. And anybody that's going to come after us is going to have to reinvent this thing because we're going to make human suffering. If you want human suffering as entertainment, we're going to give you 30 minutes of of a woman getting punched in the face. And that's going to be 30 minutes of the dead center of our movie. And, 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 and then anybody else is going to have to rethink it. Anybody else is going to have to like deconstruct it because it can't go any further than that. And, and I haven't seen anything since then that's been in that sort of genre of that of you know I know horror fans recoil against the phrase torture porn. When I say that, I just mean movies that are designed where basically the big set pieces are all around are built around human suffering. No, I'm right there with you. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I just don't. I just don't have a 
taste for it anymore. I just, uh, and for a while it actually affected my horror fandom because that was probably around the time that I kind of like stopped picking up Rue Morgue every month and that sort of stuff. I mean, I was a hardcore fan for a good long time, but the, but if and I hit a wall. I just hit a wall. The community was doing that thing like they disdained you if you didn't like films like Martyrs, and I was like, no, fuck you. There was no horror. It was just a study in suffering, and I'm like, that's not what I'm here for. Yeah. And, and I, I, I was the same way. I was kind of well, started to back away from it. See, and I may like Martyrs. I may actually like the film itself more than you, but my reaction to it, to the films that came after, were very much like, not that nobody did it better, but that, again, it was like the, the it felt like the final word on something, yeah. a movement. Um, yeah, I, I so yeah, and and you know these these first two segments were, I mean, I kind of see what they're going for in both of them. I think that having seen other your uh, Buta Garrett movies. Um, that We're gonna struggle it's, every time. Yeah. That I don't think that it's a matter of him trying. I don't think he's trying to do anything deeper than show a, a short film where somebody gets their dick cut off. Because right. I think that that's what floats his boat. Um, just based on the other movies he's made, like Shram and the Necromantic but, films. But I felt watching it, I was like, this actually has got some cool, like shots going on. There's some neat sort of like stuff with the way he's transposing images with like where this is explaining why this is happening that I really liked. But I agree when it got to that point where it was like, okay, now we're going to take glory and like this, like extreme torture. I was like, okay, let's, let's get past this. I don't mind extreme gore, but it's situational. Yeah. You know, Uh, the second one also suffered from like, Hey, I was really kind of enjoying this when it turned into a let's fuck up a bunch of neo-Nazis in their own bodies. I was like, yeah. And then the film goes, but is that what really happened? I was like, go fuck yourself. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, wow, I was really liking it at that point. But the third one is telling a story that feels almost Clyde Barker-ish. Like, I, it did. It had a it had a books of blood kind of vibe to it, didn't it? Yeah, it yeah. totally did. And I was like, I'm kind of into this. It had a mystery. It had a lot of cool visual elements of like just like things like what do these symbols mean? What is this thing? It's getting sort of like you know, it's it's H.P. Lovecraft by way of Clive Barker is mm-hmm. what it feels. Yeah, because like. it didn't explain. It still left some things unanswered, but not in a way that felt. Uh, it left things unanswered in a way that made me hungry for more, not necessarily like, oh, that didn't make any sense, but more like, more like, I kind of, like, there's a shot, for instance, of the guy who's like, not a pimp, he sort of like, owns or runs this sex club thing. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. And there's a shot of him that's just for a second, where it looks like it was taken like, 200 years ago. Mm-hmm. Which, but they never address it. But it's just like you see that photograph, and you're like, "It was what you needed." It's those kind of little things where yeah. you're like, "Yeah, you have to make it feel like it's got a bigger story mm-hmm. around." It. Yeah. All right. Uh, this has a little Q and A from their Fantastic Fest uh, uh, screening. I did not see it there. I saw it first here on Blu-ray, 15 minutes. Uh, there's a behind the scenes for about eight minutes. There's a crowd crowdfunding video they originally uh, put out to try and get this funded. Uh, Was this kickstarted? There was uh, there was a start next and a Kickstarter one. Wow! And then there's multiple trailers. Uh, this you know when I got this got sent to me, it also got sent with a considerably 
lower budget and and lower thought of anthology film called A Taste of Phobia, which is essentially a German-American production version of the ABCs of Death, which is to say a whole shit ton of very short hard uh, bits. And as much as we're talking about that torture porn thing, I got 25 minutes into this and I was like, can't do it. Like, I'm six stories into this thing, and I'm like, nope, it's just one thing after another that's just about the gore scene, and there's no real story, and I'm just not in. I I apologize. I know normally I will sit through stuff. I just, there's a, you know, it's like 14 international directors push fear to the limit, or they push their six minutes they have on film with their gore budget to the limit, which is what it felt like. I yeah. was like, eh, there was already, there was like incest, right from the incest porn, right from the get go. There was like, they just, it was like, come on guys, what are you doing here? This is, this is not good. Uh, come up with something a little more creative. The ABCs of death, which I'm not a big fan of either was about a billion times better than this was. And I, I apologize that I just turned this off, but I do have to reference that it does in fact exist and is being pushed by the same company to come out here. A taste of phobia. If that sort of thing is your thing with all these European directors coming in on this thing, most, uh, almost Every one of them I've never heard of, to be to fair. I assume they're all largely short people who are currently kind of up and coming. Maybe there was stuff I missed in here or something that was great. I apologize if, if it wasn't there, but I found this stomach churning to the point I could not sit through it. Let's move on to... Uh, <laughs> man, this shit is weird. I don't even know what to make of this film called Director's Cut. This is directed by Adam Rifkin... Uh, who has done better known for family-friendly comedies like Mouse Hunt and Underdog. Um, but here, he's teamed up with Penn Gillette, who wrote this film and is obviously trying to promote the shit out of this thing, which I think was largely crowdfunded. The idea being is that you're watching a movie, a horror film, that looks like a generic VOD horror film, that... This is the director's cut of it, and you're watching the audio commentary with it with Penn Gillette as the director doing the commentary. As it goes along, it becomes clear Penn Gillette was not the director. He was one of the big crowdfunders of the film itself, as opposed to whether or not there were crowdfunders on the outside. I'm pretty sure there were. Uh, who did all this and spent a shit ton of money so he could get closer to the film's star, uh, uh, Missy Pyle, who's playing a herself. version of herself. Yeah. yeah. And it turns from, like, a comedy into a kidnap and, and not torture. That's not the right word, because it's not really torture, but... She's making a movie, and he has the movie, and so he, like, has her captive... And begins to film his own scenes and insert them into the movie, yeah. sometimes using, like, green screen and things like that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm amused by the idea more than I am by the execution. Yeah, and it's way – you get the point of – you get what they're going for real, real quick. Hmm. So an hour and a half is is a punishing length for this film. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, <laughs> but, you know – I gotta give, it's so much, you want to give him so much credit for what is a great idea. Yeah. I kept saying, wow, this could have been great if Penn Jillette wasn't 
the star. And yeah, he's not the. He's kind of monotone in the film in regards to like he's not. It really exploits his weaknesses as an actor. Yes, uh, in a way that I wasn't prepared for because I've always found him charismatic, and yeah. there's something about this that just he's going for something that he neuters his charm and 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 I get that like the character is supposed to be kind of gross, but. It's a lot of time listening to somebody who is not giving a great performance. And there's that thing where it's a film that wants clearly wants to be a comedy on some level, like mm-hmm. a creepy comedy. Pendulette has never been much of an actor, Yeah. period. He just doesn't have the ability. And it feels like the film is making fun of that as well. He plays Herbert Blount is the name of his character here. And... That mix of trying to make it go from comedy to genuinely creepy and unsettling, I feel like entirely doesn't work because of how incapable he is of being an actor. Yeah. Like, I, I and I, it's a shame because I don't, once again, great concept, pretty decently directed on the whole, pretty decently put together. But every time he's on screen, which is 90% of the movie, if he's not on screen, we're hearing his voice in this this common so-called commentary track. It's just not good. (laughs) You're not selling me on this at all. I can imagine if they had gotten someone who was really good actor, who was playing it seriously like the whole time, I just felt like I was ep- watching an episode of his show Bullshit or something. You know, it was like, I'm not buying this for a second. Uh, I felt bad for Missy Pyle, who's giving it her all, especially later when she gets abducted by him and is forced to film new scenes for the movie starring him as well. Where she's like, I mean, in absolute like distress. And trying to, like, not get killed by just doing what she's being told to do. And I think she's great in it. I mean, the one thing I agree with this movie is him going, she's a deeply underrated actress. And I I, I agree. I think she is, too. <laughs> but this movie is a mess. Yeah. <laughs> I, can't, I can't disagree with that. Although it is also the kind of movie that if you're the right person and it catches you in the right mood, it might be one of those things that you're like, I saw this crazy movie the other night yeah, and it was called director's cut. And at first I thought it was a commentary, but then it was a real movie and the kind of thing that gets shown to friends and passed around and stuff like that. Like I could see that kind of second life for this movie, even in its imperfections. I can see that too. I mean, I certainly could see a cult forming up around this outside of the already existing cult of Pendulette fans. Um, and, and, and I am a, outside of his political Leanings. I am a fan of uh, Pendulette. He's a little bit too much of a libertarian for my tastes. But regardless of that, I, I think... Well, Something fascinating about it, when I was watching it, I kept thinking in my head, like, didn't he lose a bunch of weight? And and in the movie, he's like, like big. At, in the end, when he's in prison, they shot it after he lost the weight. Because when he's in prison at the very end of the movie... Spoiler. Uh, when he's in prison at the very end of the movie... He's skinny. And I was like, how long did they wait to film? First of all, how long did they wait to release this? Because he hasn't been that big in a long time. Yeah. And then at the end of the movie, he's the weight he is now. And in the special features, he's the weight he is now. Right. And they talk about it, but they joke about it as if him and Adam Rifkin, who some people may know from uh, 
The Dark Backward, which was a movie oh where God, Judd, Judd Nelson plays a comedian with an arm growing what out of his back. The early 90s? Yeah. yeah. Holy shit. Um, I forgot about that one. Yeah. And I, when I heard the name, I was like, I didn't need to do Dark Backward. And I went and looked it up. Um, but they joke about it, but they joke about, oh, he's going to win an Oscar because he gained all this weight for this role. Uh, <laughs> so they never address the timetable. And I was really curious about the timetable of it. Yeah. Because they had to have been sitting on this footage forever because he hasn't been that big in I think at least four or five years. I mean, this felt like a, a film though, that has been in post-production for a very long time. Yeah. Like it's a very, it, I mean, that's a, the, the point of it. It already is supposed to be, it's supposed to look choppy. He's inserting his own like, Oh, here's me stalking Missy Pyle stuff and pretending that it has part of the narrative. Like this is the director's cut of the film. It's already choppy, but even then, it's like, yeah, I can see how this was cut and recut and recut and recut, because ultimately, it wasn't really a good movie. <laughs> uh, there's a ton of features here, though, including audio commentary by director Adam Rifkin and Penn Gillette, audio commentary by, uh, it says, crowdfunder Perry Friedman. I didn't listen to it, so I assume like, the one who paid the most for the biggest Penn Gillette fan of all time. Uh, there's Riffin with Rifkin and Penn for 32 minutes, which is the two of those guys hanging out and talking about the movie. Uh, there's a behind the scenes 20 minutes. There's five deleted scenes. Uh, there's a early cut, uh, 14 minutes called Knocked Off. There's six minutes of outtakes. There's a slam dance premiere for nine minutes. There's the LA premiere for 14 minutes. There's there's a lot of shit like that. There's a ton of extras. So if you're one of those people who are like, I love Ben Gillette, fuck you guys, I can't believe you don't salute everything he does. Hey, this is, they're not fucking around. They give you every every bit of Ben Gillette you could possibly want for this substandard movie. There's, there's almost little traces of, uh, at times it kind of reminded me, not quite, and maybe this is going to sound nuts, it, at times, it reminded me a little bit of like Tim and Eric, yeah, uh, and in the in the tone way. of some of the humor. Well, then again, uh, I'm not a Tim Eric. Yeah, there was little bits of it where I was like, "That's sort of that same kind of audience," but but yeah, okay, just trace amounts. All right, so we'll talk about the film that is. I, you guys who listen to the site already know is my pick of the week because I kind of worship this movie. I think it's one of my favorite movies of the year. That's the endless. By Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead, if you get a chance, you look at the unnamed interview show. We just did it. I just did an interview with these guys recently. Love these guys. Uh, this is their third film after Resolution and Spring, which I also thought was great. This is kind of a it's, – it's weird. It's not a sequel to Resolution. It's a movie that kind of looks backwards and en engulfs their previous film, Resolution, into it. Goes like, oh, by the way, that film is part of our universe. In a very unmissable sort of way. But the idea is starring Benson and Moorhead, uh, as, who briefly appeared in Resolution as uh, two members of a cult, uh, evangelistic UFO cult. Here, it's the idea is it's many years later, they have escaped from said UFO cult, uh, reported to the press that they were a suicide cult, were glad to be away from it, but now they're starting to have doubts, especially Aaron Moorhead's character, who seems to be the dumber of the two brothers. One's more cynical, one's dumber. Um, and they get a videotape sent to them that basically invites them to revisit it 
And believe it or not, they decide to drive out to the compound and find that mysteriously no one has aged like at all. Like, not even a little bit. And they, you know, as you do, as human beings, make excuses. Well, maybe they're just one of those people who just, like, uh, they age well. They don't crack, as it were. And they find out as it goes along there's something much deeper and darker. Or is it darker? Going on here. That idea, like, everything seems so perfect. These people genuinely love each other. They all encourage each other. Yet there's weird things going on around the outside. And they created what I thought personally was one of the most interesting sort of pseudo Lovecraftian films I've seen probably ever. Um, I love what they're creating with this mythology. I'm so happy that they're going to continue to come back to it uh, and and continue at least the evolution of this universe, if not these characters. I don't know. I mean, this is a super solid release as well, but I'll get into the extra features after we hear what John has to say about it, who I suspect did not like it as much as I did. I had been wanting to see this, and I didn't get it. Like, I just, when I had watched it before you brought it over, and I wanted to watch it a second time uh, and did not get the opportunity to make time to watch it a second time, but I kind of just got left behind in general while Mm. watching this. One of the things that I thought I would adjust to better a second time is how major things that are really bizarre and it's a stylistic choice are reacted to in very nonchalant ways. And it made me keep feeling like I was missing narrative chunks Hmm. because certain things would happen and people would sort of just like answer it like no big deal or brush it off. And I would be like, am I high? Like, (laughs) like, Shouldn't that be a bigger deal? Um, like, for instance, the fact that none of them age was just like a sort of, it was kind of just a whatever between them, or that there's two moons in the sky was sort of like a, oh. But they actually do sit and explain it as a, a trick of the light in this particular area. They do talk about it, but what I'm, but the reactions to all that stuff are always just like, like, oh, like, oh, there's two moons. That's weird. Like, it's all very, like, people's reactions to things are all very, uh, like oddly subdued. And I thought maybe n- knowing that the second time would help me acclimate to the film better. I saw resolution and it's funny because I could feel the callbacks, even though I'd only seen resolution once and seen it years ago, there was something at some point in this movie. I went, did in this in resolution or didn't this happen in resolution or isn't there some connection well, to the resolution segment at the beginning of the third act that's pretty much a return to resolution yeah. Yeah. and and I did not remember resolution strong enough but I could feel those those callbacks hmm. um and I really really love spring I'm willing to give this another shot uh but I just I was kind of just I was left sort of like perplexed by kind of the whole deal I mean, you you say, like, the thing you're saying, I hear you with you saying, like, oh, they seem nonchalant, but there really is a point where they're like, we have to know what's going on here, where it's like, we grew up here. We have to know what's going on. We know something. I think early on, they're like, yeah, something's fucked up, and we're sticking around because we need to figure out what it is. Well, that was weird, too, because, like, they're like, at the beginning, they are very much like... Like, I don't know if it's a good idea. Okay, fine, I'll take you. And he's like, I want to stay. And then the other guy's like, you want to stay? 
hmm, okay, I guess we'll stay. And I'm like, wait, what? Like, what was all the conversation at the beginning of the movie? Like, again, it just it felt very just like, yeah, I guess we will. We'll stay two more nights or whatever. And it was like, you barely wanted to bring him in the first place. For me, I wouldn't even want to stay until the point where I realized that there was something like Cthulhu-ish going on. I'd be like, yeah, baby, let's stay. Is there an ancient book written in blood we can read out loud? I'm all in. That's just me, though. I'm the white guy in every horror film that does something stupid like that. Uh, there is a lot of really nice bonus features on this thing. I, I, one of the things I complimented them on when we interviewed was, like, I love that with all their movies, they go above and beyond to do very personalized, intimate extra features, which very few people actually do. The making of here, 31 Minutes, is literally the two of those guys talking into the camera like like – where they were, I think they were at a festival or something. Um, but like with a beautiful backdrop behind them, I think it's like Germany or something like talking about in detail, the stuff they took the time to say, yeah. And, and do it in such a way that feels like you're hanging out with your friends, talking with them. There's also, excuse me, even a funny bit where this, a storm is coming and they're kind of like, all right, hold for the lightning. Hold for the hold for the thunder that I kind of love. They kept in because it made it feel that much more intimate. Uh, there is uh, a behind the scenes three minute thing that's kind of a joke about the editor Michael Felker, where apparently it was a running joke on set for people to call his name out. There's ten minutes of outtakes, which are quite funny. Uh, there's uh, about one, two, three, four, five, six, seven deleted scenes that well, two of them I would say are, are are pretty much worth watching, but they're all very short. Uh, there's a VFX breakdown for three minutes that is kind of funny about how they do the rope trick in the film. Um, and then there's a whole shit ton of like them fucking around doing silly extras here, like just on set jokes that they played out into their own thing, including the thing, the short that they made UFO cult comedy, which was where years ago, which is where this all originally evolved out of, where before even resolution, where it all started from. I I personally love the shit out of this. I really hope that you do get a chance to revisit this again. I'm sorry you didn't have time to, but let's talk about our final film to. this week, which is uh, WTF. I don't even know Terminal. Right. When I saw the trailer for this thing, I was like, dude, I can't wait to see this. I don't know what this is about, but it looks insane, like crazy martial, like not martial arts, but action noir with Margot Robbie, with uh, uh, Max Irons, Dexter Fletcher, Mike Myers, weirdly, uh, Simon Pegg. I'm like, I'm super interested. And what we get from director Vaughn Stein is... I don't even... You know what? Why don't you try to explain the plot of this one? Uh, there's a... Sorry to put you on the spot. That's okay. There's a woman played by Margot Robbie who we see in a couple different guises as she manipulates uh, kind of kind of two different groups of like ne'er-do-wells, sort of people with uh, murky pasts or murky presence. And it at times seems like it's going to have some kind of religious symbolism doesn't necessarily go that way but for a little while i was thinking it was it was being more metaphorical than it was literal it's actually a fairly literal um Almost and it sadly. all yeah and it all kind of winds towards a series of twist endings that are maybe amongst the worst of any film i've ever seen in oh my, my entire God. life you're not wrong it cannot you cannot build 
a narrative with a twist ending that it is based on nothing and information that a you don't have relating relating to things that that you did not know or were not relayed to you and it's not one of those things where the director tricks you it's literally like imagine meeting someone and that person going hi my name is sam ha ha my name is actually paul you'd be like okay like what's your point like i just met you (laughs) and this movie's twist endings are that way where it's like oh you thought this but wait all of this stuff you didn't know about also happened and it's like oh all right Okay. And, and, all, all this stuff happened before the movie you watched. Like we thing, didn't even hint to it until like now. Where it starts with where she's like contacting some mysterious guy oh, that obviously voices modulated saying, I know you already have assassins, but what if this, what if I kill those assassins and then I become your assassin? And then he's like, sure. Okay. Why not? And then we get into a long slog of a film. That- lots and lots of, of those like philosophical conversations oh, dude, that have no be, point they're whatsoever. They're trying to be Tarantino-esque, but there's not... It, they're just there. And the storyline, which is like kind of like non-linear, I guess? It's hard to say. There's like her dealing with Dexter Fletcher and Max Irons, who are the two other hitmen, uh, where she has a variety of guises that for one reason or another is presumably the person who's going to kill them, who is just playing with them like a cat for the least professional assassin way ever over her. Oh, I'm a stripper. Oh, I'm a worker at a, I'm, I, I, at a waitress at a place. I'm this other thing where I was like, what is happening? And then there's the other story where back in the, the, the diner, Simon Pegg is a guy who's trying to kill himself which is the diner at the upper floor of a train station, and there's no one else there at all. And they're having that nonstop, nonsensical philosophical conversation. And the way that all comes to a point, which has, by the way, absolutely nothing to do with the rest of the movie. It's kind of like, why was that part of the story at all? The one thing I'll give this points for is at least it's shot well. It's a lot of neon. It's very colorful. It's very colorful. It's got a cool visual sense. The guy, whoever was his, like, the person who found the sets was, like, uh, the location uh, supervisor. They knocked it out of the park. But other than that, I was like, this is a major embarrassing train wreck of a pretentious film that wants to be all these things. I mean, fuck, for fuck's sakes, you hire Mike Myers as a guy who basically is playing an Austin Powers type character, you know, like with the heavy Scottish accent, you know. Fake teeth. Yeah, fake teeth and all that. And you're like, yeah, I bet that's who he actually is. I was just... I kept. Be- I was just embarrassed watching this movie. So, because it started with her talking to a disembodied voice person, and she kept showing up different places in different guises. Yeah. And because the diner was so empty, and bad people would just show up at the diner, and she would talk to them. Yeah. I had. I thought I. The only twist to me was that I thought I had the movie pegged as. Oh, it's a it's a God and Satan thing, and she's Satan, and these people are in hell, right. and the diner's basically hell, and she's kind of talking to them. Like, I thought I had it figured out as some kind of religious allegory, and what I discovered is it's not that at all in any way whatsoever. Sadly, and, not even smart enough to be that. Yeah, but that's where it certainly felt like it's 
that's that's where it felt like it was landing for a good portion of it. But again, you get these you get these this ending of like fifteen or twenty minutes of like ta da twists that oh my god are, they go on for so long are probably based on. The screenwriter probably thought they're really great because he's been thinking about this story and this character for a really long time. Yeah. So whatever backstory that he's made up for this person who I've never met until the movie started, relaying that backstory to me does not a twist make. Yeah. It it a twist have to provide some kind of payoff on what I've seen before. They can't literally be Here's some prequel information. By the way, th- you didn't know this, but now here's why this is interesting. Yeah. Hey, Chris, did you know that I like cake more than pie? What? Just kidding. I like pie more than cake. No. Oh. My mind is blown. I, <laughs> <laughs> I will say, outside of anything else, Margot Robbie is a lovely woman and a terrific actress and she is slinking all over the screen in this thing she is gorgeous in this and that's all you get sorry sorry if you're a big margot robbie fan i can see why you go yeah but i like margot robbie so i'm gonna watch it sure you get a lot of her being incredibly sexy and slinky and noirish and that's it's a showcase for her yeah more than it is say simon pegg it's the first film from her own production company so there you go but other than that, wow, what were they thinking? It's so bad. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a, it's a broken movie. It is. All right, so that's it. Oh, yeah, there's, I'm sorry, there's a six-minute uh, interview with the cast. There is a six-minute uh, featurette about the technical crew and the visual uh, stuff that they did here. There's uh, about two minutes. That's comparison of storyboards to the completed scenes. There's a photo gallery, and then there's the original trailers. Whatever. Skip it. Don't watch Terminal. Unless, like I said, you're just like, you can't get enough Margot Robbie in your life. In which case, there you go. This is it for this week's Digital Noise. we got two more coming up in close succession. Next week, we're going to have two new Digital Noises coming up. So keep up with that. We're trying to get these things out faster, I know. I know, and people keep saying, this is like my favorite show on the site. I'm like, okay, we'll try and do them faster. John, watch movies faster. What are you doing? What? Just kidding. It's hard, because most normal people have to have full-time jobs. You know, it took most of the time spent was, I was just just considering the twists. Oh, yeah. Most of last week was just watching the big country in 10-minute chunks. Uh, No, what were you saying? I'm sorry. Oh, nothing. I was just going to say, yeah, I I spent way too much time. Considering the twists of the terminal, yeah, right, or terminal, not the term, not to I mean, be confused with the Steven Spielberg it's movie. It's got to mean something, right? There's got to be some meaning here. Nope, on the nose. All right, well, that's it. Thanks once again to Oscar Blues Brewing Company, always providing us with all these great beers, and to our subscribers. Please, please subscribe. I'm begging you. I am on my knees begging you. Subscribe. I mean, seriously, are you going to notice two, five, ten dollars a month missing from your account? You're not going to. You guys have real jobs. This is all I do. I always think about it like this. Like, if they knew you, would they buy you Wendy's? Yeah. Yeah, sure, they'd buy you a burger. Yeah, so why like, not take that burger stuff. money? Once a month, you could like, yeah, I'll buy you a burger at Wendy's. Do yeah. that. Now you get to listen to me. Because yeah. if you don't, you don't get to listen to me. It's just that easy. So me and all my great, talented, incredibly funny friends like John here. So there you go. 
By the way, you can also see John doing really funny stuff if you live in Austin uh, at, at the Fallout. The Fallout. Fallout Theater. Yeah. I have shows actually this Friday and the last three Fridays of July I have I have shows. Nice. So doing sketch comedy shows the last three Fridays. Do that. Come up, introduce yourself. Tell, your, tell him you're a fan. I'm sure he won't mind. I will not mind. Unless it's stalkery. And in October, my first published comic work. What? Oh, the one you were showing me the art from. Halloween. I didn't realize that was your first published work. Yes, Halloween Man Bat City Special. Uh, which Dude, your art was so good. I'm shocked to hear that's your first. Yeah. Because I always see you on your Facebook and stuff. You do doodles. And I'm like, oh, those are very funny. Or little comic yeah. book stuff. But you doing full on. I was like, wow, that's really great it's work. My f- yeah, it's my first time uh, doing anything that's going to be published. So that'll be... Can I mean, I that's going to how long it takes you per page? Uh... Not with, not with, <laughs> not with anybody that's ever asked me to do work listening. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Fair enough. You never know. Yeah. All right. 